Thank you very much for your testimony uh, today. We will now uh, uh, go to member questions, reminding the members that committee rule 3D imposes a five-minute limit on questions. The chair will now recognize members for any questions they wish to ask the witness. I will start. I will start by noting that votes have been called. Uh, because of the time that we have, we are hopeful that we will be able to get through questions um, before we each have to go vote, but we might do a little tag team. Uh, I'll start by recognizing myself for five minutes. Miss um, um, uh, Nagel, um, you, you described in quite an impactful way the manner in which uh, women and children and other persons have been harmed and there haven't been prosecutions of them. We also heard some very powerful testimony about um, uh, others in Oklahoma who might have not faced prosecution. Can you describe how you believe uh, coming up with a congressional response to Castro Huerta can address the issues that you raised in your testimony? You're not on, on yet. but okay, there thanks. we go. So one thing I just want to address very quickly is that the NIWRC and tribal nations have been working to protect Native victims long before July 9th, 2020. Oklahoma's uh, profound professed commitment to safety for Native victims really began on July 9th, 2020, when they discovered that it would serve their political interest in their attempt to overturn McGirt to say they care about Native victims. In the state of Oklahoma, Organizations like Native Americans Against Violence advocated for decades, begged the state of Oklahoma to put Native women on state-recognized committees targeted to addressing domestic violence so that they could have a say in how the state would disperse resources or prosecute cases of violence against Native victims. And the, the Attorney General and Governor for decades refused to put Native women on those committees. We have numerous examples in Oklahoma of Native victims not receiving justice under state jurisdiction. And at the end of the day, I'm sure individual district attorneys can come up with individual Native victims they've sought out and convinced to say that they're pro-state jurisdiction and anti-tribal jurisdiction but across all of Indian country, in all of the United States, what the, what the data shows, what we know to be true, is that no one has a stronger interest in protecting Native victims than tribal nations. And when the state, when it's left up to the state, sure, you will find instances where one county attorney or district attorney does prosecute that case, but by and large, statistically, our Native victims are left without justice when they're told, go look for justice at the state. I, I could guess as to the reasons, but I think at the end of the day, and I know ranking member um, asked a question earlier, it is hard to fathom why a state wouldn't prosecute a crime against a Native victim. I think it comes down to allocation of resources, and it just hasn't been a significant priority. But it is a priority for tribes. And the public safety crisis post-McGirt was really the fabrication of the failure and refusal of local county sheriffs and attorneys to actually collaborate with attorney generals like Jerry Wisner, who's sitting here from Muscogee Creek Nation, or Sarah Hill at Cherokee Nation. Our tribes stand ready to prosecute these cases. And one other thing I will just add, as the Supreme Court held in United States versus Cooley, there is no... Um, it's a false narrative to say that you can't investigate a crime that you see happening because you might not have jurisdiction to prosecute. As the Supreme Court reminded us in the United States versus Cooley, all sovereigns have a right, if there's reasonable suspicion that a crime is being committed, to detain. You may not be the sovereign that can ultimately prosecute, but you can intervene when a crime is being committed and then call the feds or the state or the tribe or whoever needs to be called to address that crime. And so a lot of the public safety crises that we're hearing about are really just designed to serve a particular political purpose. 
Thank you very much. Uh, I also wanted to uh, have a bit more uh, testimony with regards to the concerns with uh, how this might um, overflow into uh, civil jurisdiction. So uh, I believe that would be, I'm going to ask that of Ms. Bethany Berger. Um, can you discuss a bit more about your concerns about whether, even though this began, and I think that this is the issue, is it began in one jurisdiction, but its implications across the country, across all the, the many tribes in all of our states, is, is broader, and so that's what we are looking at. Ms. Berger, can you address why you're concerned about that? I mean, so it's always been the understanding that when the federal government comes in and asserts jurisdiction to itself, that preempts state jurisdiction. In fact, understanding has been even broader that when the federal government doesn't directly um, impose jurisdiction, but um, acts in a field, that preempts state jurisdiction. That comes from that old deadly enemies relationship. And what McGirt did is it said, contrary to what the Supreme Court has always said, you have to expressly preempt state jurisdiction. So this allows, potentially, I hope not, allows state jurisdiction over family law, over tax law, over numerous fields that has never been allowed. Thank you very much. Uh, finally, uh, Ms. Uh, um, Carroll, uh, I wanted to also get more from Ms. Carol Goldberg about the Law and Order Commission. You spoke much about why, why you believe the decision was wrong, but also you quickly touched on the fact that you work on the Order and Law, the Indian Law and Order Commission, in some ways sets the path to where we need to be headed. I will leave that for uh, answer for, to a written question and will now uh, recognize the ranking member for questions. Well, thank you to uh, all of our witnesses. Uh, it's been a very interesting panel. Mr. Ballard, uh, I'm sure you were listening during the previous panel. There were some pretty emotional testimony about cases where uh, declination uh, of prosecution had occurred in Indian country uh, and resulting in denial of justice to victims. Do you believe that non-prosecution of cases with Native American victims is a widespread issue? I can speak to, to my district, and I can tell you that prosecution of cases and standing up for victims is something that I feel very passionately about. These are our Native American victims. They're members of my community. I have three nieces who are Native American. They, we live together. We work together. We worship together. And at the end of the day, I feel very passionately that we seek justice for every victim. And so, no, I, I don't believe that, that it is widespread. I believe that in my office, so we absolutely seek justice for every victim. And I can tell you it was devastating to my staff to be uh, told that we couldn't, uh, couldn't prosecute cases. And the cases that we believed in, that we had built relationships with victims, that we had persuaded victims to trust us, to come forward with horrible stories and, and place that trust in us, it was so very difficult to see uh, those cases dismissed. Well, thank you very much for your passion. Uh, Mr. Mazagani, uh, something that you said in your oral testimony really stuck out to me. Uh, you were talking about how uh, allowing uh, states' jurisdiction to prosecute 
crimes committed on Indian country provided, uh, I think your exact words were, a dual layer of protection for victims. But there were multiple members of the previous panel who had exactly the opposite opinion that said that with so many different agencies having jurisdiction that crimes could fall through the cracks. So I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to uh, expand on your opinion that the dual layer of protection idea is the correct one. Sure, and we heard from the uh, Department of the Interior representative that the federal government will in fact not be pulling back resources. So I think we can be confident in that, that dual layer of protection. And to the extent that there are states out there uh, that don't want to exercise uh, this authority, uh, then nothing changes because the federal government continues to have jurisdiction under Castro Huerta, and this wouldn't increase any public safety problems. I think the idea that if there is um, uh, another sovereign that can prosecute that only complicates and makes things worse is, is not the right one. And we know that including from the tribal perspective. When the tribal governments were given jurisdiction uh, under the uh, Violence Against Women Act statutes, they were given it concurrently with the federal government. But nobody was arguing that that would make Indian victims less safe because now there's a second sovereign that can prosecute. It was always argued that it, can make in, it would make Indian victims more safe. So I think that belies the assertion that whenever you add another sovereign, it just makes things worse, not better. Right. Thank you. Well, I, I want to thank uh, all of our witnesses. This has been uh, an incredibly informative hearing. Uh, hopefully this is the first of several hearings that we'll conduct as we try and craft a solution to this issue. But uh, I want to thank everyone for focusing on the, the need to provide this justice and uh, the need to provide resolution to victims and their families. I think that that should be our guiding principle. Thank you, Madam Chair. You'll back. Thank you, Ranking Member. Uh, the Chair will now recognize the gentleperson from Guam's, uh, Representative San Nicolas. Thank you so much, Madam Chair. I apologize for my tardy um, presence in the hearing. Um, I had the original uh, scheduling for 1 p.m. Um, on my calendar. I didn't realize that it was moved to 11 p.m. I mean, 11 a.m. And so uh, I will definitely be catching up on the transcriptions of the um, previous testimony. But I, I was able to dial in um, just in time to, to listen to Mr. Mazzagani and the case he was making for um, somehow dual sovereignty uh, in, in a judicial system being a good thing. Uh, I, I really I really can't see can't see how that how that makes much sense. Uh, it's it's like saying that um, you know having a plethora of authority to be able to determine a, judici a judicial process is somehow something that's going to be better for uh, better for the process. And really, you know, when, it, when you're talking about due process and when you're talking about um, the, the sovereignty of the, of the tribal nations, you really cannot, uh, you cannot serve two masters and you cannot have two systems that, that claim to be espousing um, one, one form of justice. Uh, we need to, in my opinion, Madam Chair, um, respect the history respect the trajectory and respect the um, sovereignty of the tribal nations and, and what we've extended to them over the years. I believe that the ruling of the Supreme Court um, to allow for states to um, also be able to interject into the um, judicial, ju the need for judicial proceedings uh, on, on the tribal um, uh, in in the face of tribal sovereignty, I think is just something that's incompatible with the word sovereignty, uh, and so I would very much like to familiarize myself more with um, 
with the testimony that I, I was unfortunately unable to, to capture earlier. Uh, but I will go ahead and yield my time back to you, Madam Chair, if there was anything you wanted to elaborate based on any of the sentiments I've shared. Thank you very much uh, for your comments and your, uh, your, your, your apt description of um, multiple masters. Uh, I, I, I am concerned about issues where you have overlapping jurisdiction. We are all, I think, very comfortable with uh, the federal state or federal tribal relations. I, I will say I worked in tribal state relations for 30 years, and whenever you have uh, Dual taxation is an area that we worked in a lot because it doesn't work when you have overlapping jurisdictions that are not um, federal at the federal level, federal uh, tribal. And so I think that that is one of the concerns that we will be addressing. We also, I think, statistically know um, that the issue um, of murdered and missing indigenous women and people is precisely because of the fact that there hasn't been clear uh, jurisdiction and the ability of the tribes to prosecute. So these are issues. Uh, I really do want to thank our uh, our two witnesses uh, for the work for the perspective that they gave, which was important for us to hear. So I thank you very much for that. I thank you for your commitment uh, to um, the victims of crime in your jurisdiction and uh, your dedication uh, to them. And with that, uh, the uh, we are at the end of our hearing. And so are there any other, okay, great. So as I, not great, but just because we got to go vote, we actually were able to do this. I very much am sorry, Representative, that uh, uh, we, uh, we did want to make sure we got, we thought it was important that we have our hearing uh, on this decision, that we move forward because it does have such uh, great implications and we have a very long series of votes this afternoon. So I, I stated before, the members of the committee may have some additional questions for the witnesses and we will ask you to respond to those in writing under committee rule three. Oh, members of the committee must submit witness questions within three business days following the hearing, and the hearing record will be held open for 10 business days for these responsive. If there is no further business, without objection, the subcommittee stands adjourned. <laughs>